Every step I take, I move my truth. Every time they tell me stop, I use. Every comment, hate that makes my feel. Gather up my energy and boom. I hear them talking, saying the way that I move is so reckless. That is a part of my mind I've been blessed with. Giving my blood so I am relentless. All right, this is a Keep Hammering Collective. And again, a solo podcast. Today's topic is going to be the legend of Roy Roth. For those that know my story, my story, there would be no story if it wasn't for Roy. I'll give a little background. Roy Roth and I grew up in this same small town here, about 20 miles from where I live now. And uh, Marcola, Oregon, we went to Mohawk High School. My class had 24 kids in it. His class was uh, the year ahead of me. He was two years older than me, but, um, or two years in school, no, two years older in age, but one year in school. I started school very young, so he was uh, two years older, but I graduated in 85, he graduated in 84. For Roy, uh, he was a good athlete, you know, um, as those no, those who might not know, he was a big dude, uh, a beast. Um, and, but very athletic. He played football, baseball, really good at baseball, third base, quick hands, uh, could get the ball out of his mitt and over to first base quickly. Uh, great hand-eye coordination. We'd go fishing, me, him, Donnie Manila would, uh, you know, we're, we fished for native cutthroat there in Mill Creek. And basically with those fish, they're smart. You get basically one cast in a hole, and the, if there's a big fish in there, it'll hit. If you don't show yourself, if you sneak up, if you flick it in and there's no splashing or anything like that. So we would race from hole to hole, um, wading up the creek, but you had to be, you had to almost stock the holes too, because as I said, those fish are smart. Well, Donnie and I, who was the quarterback, best athlete in the high school, then me, I was, you know, smaller, was a receiver, and then Big Roy. And no matter, I mean, we won sometimes, but most of the time Roy would win getting to the best hole, and he could just cover distance when it came to something like that. Like, you wouldn't believe. We, I named him Gazelle Roy because he was like a gazelle out there and could just jump over logs, whatever, make sure he got the to the best fishing hole. So that was where we grew up. That was how we grew up. Um, playing sports, small town. Uh, none of us, uh, of those three, me, him, and Donnie, none, none of us drank in high school or anything like that, didn't party. It was all about sports and uh, later than hunting. But uh, Roy, he, we weren't super close in high school. Me and Donnie were more close as friends. I just relied on Roy for hunting information because he was, I called him the guru. He ran a trap line all through high school. He was always out there, loved hunting. We rifle hunted, rifle hunted at this time, but he was just couldn't get enough of being in that logging country chasing mostly big blacktail. He killed a big, I think like a seven by six bull with the, with a rifle when he was young. Um, 
but we we didn't do a lot of elk hunting at that time. It was mostly just for bucks. So Roy was the man. Always made it happen. Always knew where a good place to go was. Uh, up we called it Windling, which is a logging area up above town there, and. Once we got out of high school, he was doing construction. And I think he went to Lane Community College and he got a degree in construction, uh, maybe in some type of pre-engineering type stuff, maybe uh, design, because he was a builder, very good with his hands, as I said, from sports, but also in, in building and very creative and just a hard worker. So he was going to take over his dad's construction business, Roth Construction. So he went to Lane, got, I think, a two-year degree there, and I graduated and then tried to play football. And we kind of, you know, I graduated on a 17, so I tried to play fo football as young. By the time I came back after that didn't work out, um, Roy said, hey, you know, I, I bow hunted last year. When you were gone, you should start bow hunting. And he goes, it's, you know, you, you don't see anybody out there. Rifle hunting is kind of like a... You know, it's a war zone out there sometimes, especially up there is kind of kind of known for big buck country. So we'd have a parade of people from town heading up the road opening morning and it was, you know, a war zone. But uh, he said, bow hunting, there's nobody out there and you see a lot of animals, you know, killing him is a different thing. But I said, OK, sounds good. So I got a, a cheap bow for a bow hunters discount warehouse, a Golden Eagle Superhawk turbo cam. Um, didn't know anything about matching up arrows and, and bows and the bows were loud and slow. And, you know, we, we did the best we could. We shot all the time. We were definitely addicted to archery. And, uh, it was at that time that I found, you know, something besides drinking that I could do. Uh, cause I did start drinking after I got out of high school and, and went to college and the whole party football scene, um, down in Ashland where I went to Southern Oregon state was, uh, it was intense. So got really good at that, really good at being a dipshit, but came home cause I couldn't afford it down there and, uh, started to bow hunt and I could dedicate myself to something more health healthy. And, uh, Roy and I, we would just practice all the time and, uh, we loved getting out. Uh, he still kind of did his thing. I did my thing. I went out and I killed a bull my first year, killed a spike bull. I was with my brother at this time. He same year he started bow hunting. He was three years younger than me. So he was probably 16 at this time. Then I would be 19. And uh, he, uh, yeah, it was, got it done. Um, the next year I killed a nice buck. And I killed another bull, like a, a five by five and I killed a bear. So the next year I bull buck bear. I cannot say enough good things about the guys over at Montana Knife Company. I've been using their knives in the mountains for the past three years and I've been nothing but impressed. They're an American company, their knives are made here in America and their master bladesmith, Josh Smith, is one of the best knife makers out there. Their culinary cutlery is some of the best I've used, even though I don't use it because I don't cook, but I do use it when I'm eating. But I do know any cook would likely love them in their kitchen. I'm proud to partner with the guys over at Montana Knife and looking forward to some cool new products we're working on collaborating on in the coming months. Head over to MontanaKnifeCompany.com today and use code CAM for free shipping. Roy and I did a, 
a California pig hunt right after that. Our first out-of-state hunt, we went down to Wairika and hunted pigs with some other friends. And um, Roy was, he was the man down there. Uh, those pigs and dogs up close were in the brush, you know, trying to finish off wounded pigs. It was pretty fun, pretty exciting. Then we came back and we're like, well, what more can we do? What bigger adventures can we go on? You know, at, at this time, I said we did an out-of-state hunt, but most of our hunting was within 10 or 15 miles of our house. We weren't, we didn't have any money. Um, but where there's a will, there's a way. So we decided that we needed to go over eventually after a few years, still always killing. You know, I killed this big buck in the Steens, I think my third year bow hunting, and that was uh, a giant buck. Roy was there. Roy was there on that, is either that hunt or, or uh, no, it was the next year. He was with Wayne when Wayne killed a big bull there. And so we were kind of on a roll as far as getting animals on the ground. But Roy, Roy and I wanted big adventure. We started going to the Three Sisters Wilderness to elk hunt, uh, pack in with llamas that we bought, and uh, we could load them in as he had a Nissan pickup. And we could load them in there and take llamas to haul more of our gear that we wouldn't have to pack and then we could stay longer because we'd have more food and stuff and fuel and we had big propane right the propane stoves with the big green canisters and you know all that stuff wasn't very backpack friendly uh there was no garmin in reaches back then there was no good gear for us we couldn't afford anything but we had a lot of passion for bow hunting and for the mountains so we started going to three sisters couldn't really get on finding bulls there is is tough it's a lot of timber um if they're not calling you know it's it's tough to locate so we said hey uh i i told i remember i killed my first buck over in the right on the edge of the eagle cap wilderness when i was 15 with a rifle and i said um my is my stepdad uh greg spike his family had a big ranch over in eastern oregon in echo and my grandpa had a ranch in hermiston which is seven miles away i think and so i said let's head over there let's uh talk to my uncle and get maybe he knows someplace in the eagle cap we can go and chase elk because we couldn't find him in the three sisters loophole optics has been providing my binoculars and eyewear for the last few years I like that it's an Oregon company and they make such high quality glass. That's all I've really used. And if you can't find what you're hunting, it's going to be tough to kill. So Leupold Optics has really played an integral part in my success these last few years. Thank you, Leupold, for supporting the podcast. We bombed over there, no money, uh, but made it happen. Got in there and got in on bulls, you know, had no business hunting the wilderness at this time. We, we weren't prepared. But we got on bulls and I uh, just couldn't get one killed. But we were like, man, this is crazy. Nobody back here. Awesome country. Bulls screaming. We didn't know what we were doing at all, but we loved it. So we wanted to go back. That was the first week of season. We had somehow figured out a way that maybe the third week we could head back over there and maybe the bulls would be riding and be better hunting and we just didn't know how we were going to get there because we didn't have any gas money. Well, Roy, being a problem solver and a troubleshooter, and there is no challenge too great, he had this 
uh, collector's edition 3030 that his grandpa had given him. And so he says, I'm going to, I'll sell this gun for gas money. Then we'll have, we can drive all the way over there. It's eight hours all the way across state. And then we'll have money for food and gas and we can pack in and hunt. So we did that, took the llamas back over there, packed in long story, longer or shorter, whatever you want to do. I could go on and on about this. I'll, I'll kind of cut it down, but we kept going deeper and deeper into the wilderness, down into the big drainage. We ended up seeing this dentist back there from Eugene. And he said, you know, where are you guys headed? And I just said, we're looking for elk. Uh, and at this time we'd never killed a wilderness bull. And I said, we're looking for elk and we want to get away from people. So he says, he said, uh, well, he goes, I got this place you guys can go. And it's where we used to hunt with Billy Cruz. And, you know, he had died there in a, in a scouting for elk. He had, his plane crashed and uh, he had died. So he said, Billy used to hunt this country that was too rugged for man and too steep for horses and nobody wants to go there. And uh, he goes, I'll tell you where that is and you guys can go because we're not going to go there. And I said, oh, it sounds perfect. So Roy and I took off, we went in there and we had so much opportunity, you know, just screwed up on bulls. Finally, I got a spike bull killed. And that was my first wilderness bull, another one. I'd killed some other pretty good bulls back home or a little bit bigger, nothing, nothing giant, but um, and a big five by five was like my best bull at that time. And then I killed the spike in the eagle cap. So we had, uh, you know, survived the weather, got down to eight degrees there in the Grand, so up on the mountain, who knows how cold it was. And we had, we had the worst gear you could, we had gear that people with no money have. And, uh, and it was enough though. Got a, got a bull killed, had to pack it. There was a closer trailhead to get out, but our rig was all the way across the wilderness. And we had to pack 22 miles to get that spike bull out. And we did it. And that was, uh, I think about my fourth year bow hunting. That would have been 93, I believe. And then in 94, Roy moved to Alaska. So I was on my own, but, uh, I just want to set a little, little precedence for, how Roy and I started this journey. And if it wasn't for Roy, I wouldn't even be a bow hunter. Uh, he was the one that we learned together, but he, he, um, he was the one that pushed me to get my first bow. So once he went to Alaska and then I was on my own down here, my only choice was try to talk somebody into hunting, which it's, you know, if people, if you have to talk somebody into hunting the wilderness, it's, it's not going to go very well. I mean, that's one of those things where you either love it or hate it. And I loved it. I took some other people back there. They didn't love it. It was big, rugged country. I would split up and say, you go this way. I go this way. So how me and Roy used to do it. So we were essentially on our own. And, um, most people aren't, they're not into that. They like the, uh, camaraderie of hunting camp. They like, um, they like having somebody, it just, it's easier with another, another guy back there. It's just all there is to it. It's, it's easier mentally, mentally and physically. And, uh, you get a little more confidence when you have somebody. And so I couldn't find anybody. They would go and maybe try it one time. And that was it. So I kept going and I kept killing bulls, but it was on my own. I had to figure out how I was getting animals out. Sometimes it was trying to talk somebody, uh, into helping me and pay for a hotel room and pay for pizza. Or sometimes it was, you know, try to hire a horse packer. If I, one time I killed a bull and I was 10 miles back and 
I had, uh, I did some flag and ribbon down to the main trail, which was, uh, you know, as I said, 10 miles and then went all the way out, went to the horse packers house. I had to get back to work. I left him $300 there. And I said, you know, could you go get my bull? I got it hanging and it's all processed, hanging skinned quarters are good. Everything's good. I just have to get back to work and please tell me if you can't go get it and I'll have to come back over here, drive eight hours, pack all the way in. You know, this was late September. So the meat was good as is cold and snowing at this time, but, uh, he ended up going to get it. Point is, is like, I had like this whole other dilemma on how I was getting kills out once I, once I killed by myself. Um, so once that, that happened, Roy was up in Alaska, just killing it. I mean, just becoming an Alaska legend. And for those that don't know, there's different types of hunting. There's lower 48 hunting, which can be hard. I just explained the Eagle cap and there's a lot of rugged wilderness areas down here. There's grizzlies, there's wolves, there's lions, there's just re regular bear. It's, you know, it can be intimidating for people, but it's not Alaska. Up in Alaska, it's another level of hunting. I remember I went up to Alaska and spoke at the Alaska Bowhunters Association banquet. And I'm like, why am I talking to these guys? I'm not, I might be decent down in the lower 48, but these guys are next level. They're so freaking tough, so capable. What could I possibly tell them about bow hunting that they're not better than me at already? Um, but a lot of people in Alaska, they're just tough just because it's, it's tough to live there. The conditions are hard and it just makes hardy men. So they're also not, they just love, I don't know. They, they love the challenge of the mountains. They're not so much into getting a bunch of attention for it. There's some very famous bow hunters in Alaska, but a lot of them are just grinders. They just like to hunt. They just, you know, provide for their family. And a lot of people don't know about them. They're just, they're just, you know, badasses in the mountains and they get it done and, and that's okay. They're not looking to be in magazines. You know, they're not looking at that time to be on TV. And in fact, they would, they would look at me and say, Oh, you know, who's this guy's you know, self-promotion, uh, talking about whatever, always, you know, writing articles or in magazine ads or on TV. And it was like a kind of like a slam on me because in their eyes, maybe I wasn't pure, uh, pure bow hunter or, or bow hunting for the right reasons. You know, and I, maybe I would agree with them. I mean, and I, I loved bow hunting. There's no doubt about that. I loved writing and sharing my adventures and sharing the stories. So to get those opportunities, you do have to kind of promote yourself because I, I had to have opportunities in these magazines or on TV and, uh, you know, if, if I'm not promoting myself, nobody else is going to. So I, I, you know, I, I would be guilty of that, I guess. And, and some of those guys eyes, but point is, is there's people in the crowd, like a, a Dr. Jack Frost stud, people know him, uh, a Bob Amin, a Frank Nosca, um, later on it'd be, it'd be Jonah Stewart who Roy guided for. And, uh, these guys are just, man. Jeremy was another one that Roy hunted with a lot up there. Just freaking tough, tough, great bow hunters. And man, I don't know, just the kind of guy that any bow hunter should 
or the kind of people any bow hunter could look up to and say, okay, these guys do it right. So I say all that to explain the culture that Roy moved into. And um, as I said, it can be hard, well, for me, for an outsider from the lower 48 to earn respect up there. Um, I got the opportunity to speak up there twice and it was incredible. But most of the time, what I wanted to talk about was Roy. Roy, in my mind, from what I had seen, and I hadn't hunted with everybody at that time, I hunted, you know, I hunted a small group of people, but I thought they were badasses. And I thought Roy was the biggest badass of anyone that I knew. So that doesn't mean much. My perspective, it's, it's another level up there, as I explained. So Roy went up there and then he started, you know, it, it gave me great pleasure. He started to earn respect from even the most badass people up there. Everybody was learning or hearing stories about this guy from Wasilla, this bow hunter, Roy Roth. And uh, Roy, I don't think he ever wrote an article himself, but I wrote a lot of articles on him. As I said, I was his number one fan. I believed in him. And, um, and you know, he, also, he believed in me too. He was in this... Um, I guess in the hunting industry, talking shit is just something that happens. Uh, it's hard to earn respect. But I, I also knew that Roy would never talk shit about me. He, we were like brothers and uh, he always believed in me. So if I said, I want to write an article about you, he would be like, yeah, let's do it. Um, he liked my writing he probably liked maybe the end result of seeing the adventure told and being able to share it with his family, you know, and up in his cabins and his home. And uh, his mom and dad had a fishing lodge up there in Alaska. They had these articles that I wrote framed and matted and it looked great. I mean, there was uh, adrenaline overload in Alaska. I wrote about Roy, uh, killed this giant, probably would have been like, I think the number two caribou and killed it with a recurve and, uh, you know, he didn't enter many animals in the, in the book or get them scored, but this was a giant caribou. I wrote, uh, an article called the perfect 10 killed 10 animals in one season with his bow, just a stud. Uh, I wrote something white. He just wanted to kill something white. It was, a, a Rocky mountain goat and a doll sheep. Those are both white animals and he killed those with the bow. So I wrote an article, article called something white. I wrote an article called uh, let me see. What was another? Uh, oh yeah. I wrote one, one of my favorite ones. It was called, it's not about the bow because Roy shot compound. And then he also shot recurve and it didn't matter. He killed with both. He killed giant animals and had amazing adventures with both. Didn't matter compound and recurve. So the point of the article was, it's not about the bow. It's about the man. And you put, a weapon in this man's hand, Roy Roth, something was going to die. He was the best woodsman, the toughest, the most, the best, uh, as I said, problem solver, but also the most optimistic person you'll ever come across, which is to, to survive in the mounds, it takes all that. Um, and so that article, it's not about the bow, is, it stands out to me because I remember one time, or in that, when I was writing that, I said, what what, uh, what's your greatest key to success and, um, or something like that. And he said, it's just always believing it's going to happen and just 
being out there. He's like, sometimes I have no idea what to do, but I'm just out there. And if you're out there, anything can happen. So it's just, you hunt, you just get out and hunt. I mean, as I say, you can't kill from the couch. And, and that was kind of the point to, to that example there was if you're out there, man, you never know, you never know what's going to happen. And so he was out there a lot. He ended up killing nine brown bear with his bow, which I don't know if anybody's killed that many still, uh, nine dull sheep, which I'm sure people, some people have, but maybe just a handful, but, uh, nine archery kills with his bow on, on doll sheep is incredible. So killed grizzly. He killed, you know, whatever he, he was, um, he's the best bow hunter I've ever come across. And now I've been doing this for 35 years and hunted with some amazing people, very capable, incredible bow hunters themselves, but none of the, none of them were like Roy. Hey guys, you want to be as smart as famed neuroscientist Andrew Huberman, PhD at Stanford? Well, sadly, that's probably not going to happen. But I did find something that can help, and that's HVMN Ketone IQ. I actually downed one right before reading this. So if I sound decent, it's probably why. Because I'm not sure if you guys realize how much brain power podcasting takes. But whatever I can take that will at least make me sound smarter, I'm in. Ketone IQ is a clean energy boost without sugar or caffeine. Ketone IQ increases your blood ketones. I'm not on a keto diet, but by taking Ketone IQ, I can achieve the desired focus and energy for explosive workouts that ketones typically provide to those in ketosis. You can find Ketone IQ at your local Sprouts or online at hvmn.com. Use code CAM. C-A-M for 20% off your first order. Hoyt Archery has been my bow hunting sponsor since 2005. And personally, I really don't care what bow you shoot, what brand it is. I just hope that you have the same level of confidence in your equipment as I have in mine. Because I know if I get one opportunity with my Hoyt, it's going to pay off. I, I did want to read this. So Bob Amin, I mentioned uh, an Alaska legend up there. He... Um, sometimes these, these area legends get to know each other and Bob and Roy got to hunt together. I think I'm pretty sh I'm not sure if Frank Noska ever hunted with Roy, but definitely knew of each other. And then Jack, Dr. Frost, he, uh, I think he operated on Roy's knee one time he blew it out. And, and so that, you know, one time after we spoke at the, or I spoke at the Alaska banquet me and Roy went over to Dr. Frost's house and looked at all his animals. So Roy definitely knew him. And, uh, we talked bow hunting with him a number of times. So, um, within this circle, Roy connected probably most with Bob Amin. And there's an article here I want to share. You know, I used to, before I screwed up this opportunity, like I kind of explained in my last solo podcast, uh, my Eastman's career was again, self-sabotaged me. Do you want to look for any problems with uh, something that I'm doing and it usually falls apart? You can look right here because it's me. So I also screwed up this opportunity with Bowhunter Magazine, which was a huge honor for me. I had, you know, Dwight Shue was a, a legend and hero of mine. And uh, he was the editor of, the, of this magazine when I started my call and bleed um, for them, but 
Dwight retired, new editor came in, not a big fan of me, probably because of me again. Don't don't look any further than that. And so I haven't I haven't written for them in, in a while. <laughs> since 2009 I still think they have my name on the masthead so never never say never but I'm good at burning bridges so um, point is Bob wrote this article and uh, this was in let me see what year this was March of 2016 so Roy died in 2015 and this article it talks about Roy on Kodiak Island with Bob. So here's how it starts off. It's called Roy Saddle by Bob Amin. It's in the March issue of 2016. It says, as Roy finished building my Kodiak buck shack, I found myself looking at him in awe and asking myself, how does he do it? New Yorker John Borland and I were there to help Roy, to help, but Roy did the bulk of the work. Whether he was bow hunting or working on a remote construction project, it was impossible to match Roy's pace or intensity. With the shack finished, we flew back to Kodiak. Roy was scheduled to guide a bear hunter for outfitter George Westcott, and I was going mountain gun hunting. A week later, Roy had gotten his client a brown bear, so he regrouped, and along with Matt Neuschvold, flew back to the buck shack for a deer hunt. It'd be Roy's first opportunity to hunt deer at Bumble Bay. We'd been hunting deer in Kodiak for decades, but it'd be nice to stay in a cabin rather than enduring the ravages of Kodiak's weather in our usual tent cab. Roy and I, this is Bob's hunt with Roy, but Roy and I also hunted Kodiak a number of times and <laughs> always challenging that weather on Kodiak is, is rough. Uh, but uh, man, we had some great adventures there. And he, he was like so good at hunting Sitka Blacktail. Roy was just a stud. But let me get back to the article or Bob's article. So he writes, we were looking for mature bucks, but we weren't finding anything we liked. It was prior to the rust, so the bucks weren't acting like crazed teenage boys. On our third day, we split up on our third day, we split up for the day. As darkness was setting over the grass-covered hills of Bumble Bay, Matt and I were back in the warm, dry comfort of the buck shack. No Roy. He never came back before dark, but is well past dark 30. Blake Patton once asked me as we sat in our tent, tent wall, if, as we sat in our tent well after dark, at what time will you start to worry about Roy? I never worry about him. He can handle anything, I said. Roy didn't own a watch. He hunted until dark, and then he turned around and headed back for camp. It wasn't in his genetic code to waste one minute of daylight. He might find a buck during last light, and if there was a possibility of killing it, Roy was there. Back in the fall of 2013, Roy dropped me off with our boat and planned to return at the end of the day to pick me up. I killed a buck early in the day and was back at the pickup point well before dark. Roy was nowhere to be seen. As it turned out, Roy had killed a buck toward the end of the day, and his light was fading by the time he had the buck boned out and loaded into his pack. As he walked back to the river on a well-used bear trail, another mature buck walked up the trail right to him. It took everything he had to pass on the buck. A minute later, a second buck, a much bigger one, walked up to within 10 feet of Roy. Roy, Roy had exhausted his tolerance and took the shot. Roy could see like an eagle during the day and like an owl in low light. His eyes were a major reason why he was so successful as a bow hunter. I've never hunted with anyone who could see game like Roy. So now he had two huge mature Sitka blacktails to pack to the river. Of course, Roy wouldn't return for a second load, so he just packed both deer, a load of about 150 pounds at the same time. No big deal. I've seen him carry 200-pound packs several miles through two feet of snow. 
this is Bob talking. This isn't me telling these amazing stories about Roy. This is another Alaska legend who is just going to tell it like it is because Bob's been around, done it. it. As I said, this is him talking about Roy. Uh, now, now listen, no big deal. Bob writes, I've seen him carry 200 pound packs several miles through two feet of snow. That's Roy. That's what I, when I think of, when I think of badass bow hunters, I see these guys and I see people try to take shots at, at each other, a lot of ego and hunting, but I see these guys and I'm like, <laughs> a lot of them, they might be tough, but I'm still thinking to myself, you have no idea what tough is. Roy set the standard and, and I can't expect everybody to know that or live up to that to that level, but that's what I compare myself to. So that's when I compare myself, I'm like, I am nothing. I'm nothing compared to Roy. He was, yeah, that's who I, that's who I learned, um, how to be tough in the mountains from. So get back to the story here. Bob writes, meanwhile, I waited patiently for a few hours at night until I heard Roy Zodiac screaming up the river. Another time at our buck shack on Kodiak, it was about an hour after dark when we finally saw the glow of Roy's headlamp bouncing down the beach of Bumble Bay. As he got closer, we could hear him singing. Roy was always singing. Usually it was either when he got up in the morning or as he reluctantly came back to camp in the dark after a full day of hunting. Come to think of it, those are the only times I was typically with him. Maybe he sang all day long. Who knows? That day, right at dark, now I, was, I just want to interject. I remember we were when I killed my... Our last hunt together was a moose miles from the road in Alaska. It was a rifle area, but you could use a bow. So we could get further back. Most, most time people don't want to get back when they kill a moose, but it's this moose sitting right over here. It's uh, uh, just a gray bull, but we were four miles back and up over this big ridge and I got this bull killed. It's on the video is called the tribute. And it's uh, Roy and I's last hunt together before he fell. So he, uh, we were breaking down that bowl at about 11 or midnight and he's singing, uh, same thing, always singing, always love the work part. always love being miserable. Remember that night we laid in our tent, we were wet, everything was wet cause it'd been snowing and we were eating all our food because we're, I killed, so we're getting out of there. And we had so much candy and food, and we were just rappers everywhere, just having the best time of our lives and singing and telling stories. And another thing Roy would have me do is I'd pack magazines back there, and I would just read him stories. He'd just say he didn't want to. I mean, another part of the story is like every time we'd go, go out to breakfast or something, I had to read. I always had to read something. So I'd read the paper and eat slow, and he'd get mad, but he'd say, well, read to me. So I'd just read whatever I was reading for eating but if we were in hunting camp i'd read hunting stories and we'd just lay there in the tent i'd read and he'd just uh you know listen so that was a camp life with roy's it was pretty great but um so bob again writes uh that day right after dark roy oh yeah and when he said maybe he sang all all day long who knows and he continues that day right after dark roy finally killed a nice buck. He knew he was a long way from the buck shack, so he field dressed it and packed it a limited portion of the meat back, planning to retrieve the rest of the buck in his trophy antlers the following day. The next day was a beautiful, uncharacter uncharacteristically sunny, 
with a light breeze. It was early November, so bucks were chasing prospective girlfriends everywhere. I was sitting on a ridge glassing for a particular buck I'd seen 10 days earlier, and I just happened to look to the north. Roy was standing on the top of the ridge a half mile distance. What's he doing up there, I wondered. Then I saw the buck. Roy was waiting for the buck to walk around to his side of the mountain. I watched from my binoculars as Roy drew his bow and loosed the arrow. The buck crashed down the mountain and ran towards the saddle below, which would be a much easier packing job than if he had run the other direction. The buck staggered towards a draw rimmed with thick alders, and I knew I needed to carefully mark his exact location so I could help Roy find him. The buck fell and rolled into an alder, alder patch. I focused my binoculars and was relieved to see a nearby gut pile from the buck Roy had killed the evening before. It'd be easy to direct Roy to that spot. I looked back at Roy and could see him searching for a blood trail in the wrong direction. I didn't know if he'd be able to hear me, but I yelled at the top of my lungs, Roy, your buck is in the alder patch above your gut pile. The response was classic Roy as he yelled back, which gut pile? <laughs> I laughed out loud as I wondered just how many bucks he had down there. I directed Roy to his buck as he pulled it from the alders. He yelled back, will you come over and help me pack? Off I went while I was delayed a bit by a sow brown bear and her cub. I was soon admiring Roy's two bucks. He told me I could hear you plain as day when you yelled, but I couldn't figure out who it was or where you were. I just thought it might be the Lord talking to me. I laughed out loud over that one too. By the time we made the beach, loaded down with the three bucks, it was dark. We had another mile to go, but it was such an enjoyable evening, neither of us dreaded the task at hand. As always, Roy carried much more weight than me, and I think the extra pounds may have influenced his singing voice in a positive way. I found myself really enjoying Roy's singing on that clear starlit night. I'll never forget that evening hike down the beach. Tears flow as I write these words. So this is Bob writing again. On October... October 4th, 2015, Roy fell to his death during a sheep hunt on Pioneer Peak. After the initial shock of this tragic news faded, I realized I had watched Roy shoot his last buck. Maybe it was fate that I got to watch those events unfold and I was there to help him pack. Roy loved hunting blacktails as much as I do. Future Kodiak trips will never be the same for me. I feel the same as Bob there when he writes that, that any hunting memories without Roy or without Roy to, to share them with after the fact, either on the phone or in person, it just, it's not the same. You can't, you can't replace somebody like Roy. And, uh, you know, I went up to Alaska and hunted with Roy, I would say 30 times on some of the most adventurous, uh, wild hunts anyone could do, you know, charging, brown bear, wounded black bear, rugged sheep, um, every rugged sheep country, everything, everything, the biggest adventures anybody could go on. And, and I shared them with Roy. So that's, it's never going to be the same. Any, any kill I have, any of these memories watered down, muted, they're fine. The memories are great. It's not the same. Um, so I, I, I can, uh, understand Roy or, uh, Bob's words about Roy when he writes few Kodiak trips will never be the same for me or future Kodiak trips will never be the same for me to honor Roy and celebrate his love for hunting Kodiak. I decided that the saddle below where I had watched him kill his final buck would be Roy's saddle. I was compelled by the need to set some sort of marker there. The first step was 
to construct a monument that I could pack up the saddle. It'd be a cedar post and cross member with Roy's saddle carved into it by Jeremy Hoagland. I took the cedar board to Roy's memorial service and asked many of his closest building buddies to sign it in permanent ink. My trip to Kodiak in 2015 would be somber. Kodiak pilots and so many other Kodiak residents all knew Roy and everyone expressed their sorrow and sympathy regarding Roy's passing. Everyone loved Roy. As I watched the island pass beneath the plane, I recalled pilot Jack Lechner giving me a hard time about not being able to convince guys to come back for a second Kodiak deer hunt. Year after year, I returned to Cub Air with a new hunting partner. After experiencing where I took them and the Kodiak weather, most really didn't want to go back. Kodiak is the harshest, most grueling environment I've ever hunted. It takes a special kind of bow hunter to voluntarily return, voluntarily return year after year. Roy was a epitome of that kind of bow hunter. He thrived on adversity. The tougher things got, the louder Roy sang. He loved it. In November 1995, I was on. I was in Jack's office after a 10-day solo deer hunt when the phone rang. Jack answered and then handed me the phone and said, this bow hunter wants to go deer hunting. I really didn't want to tell someone I didn't know where I had just killed four bucks, but I figured I'd be helping Jack out. I relented and told the guy where I'd been, and there were probably still a few bucks left there. Two weeks later, Roy Roth showed up at my office in Wasell with photos of four bucks, all bigger than the ones I had killed. That was the first time I had met Roy. That was the first time I had met Roy. In 1998, I asked Roy if he wanted to join me on Kodiak deer on a deer hunt. What a role reversal. Now I was run trying... Now, I was the one trying to keep up. You couldn't keep Roy off of Kodiak Island during the Blacktail Rut. That was just fine with me as we hunted together just about every year for the next 15. A better hunting partner than Roy Roth never, ne has never and will never exist. My wife, Lisa, and I talked about one of his many attributes. We both knew I could depend on him for anything. He could handle any situation, never lost his cool, and always kept a positive and fun attitude. Lisa knew if I was out there with Roy, I would be okay and would come back in one piece. I know, I know Roy's many bow hunting buddies felt the same sense of assurance. And I, in that regard, I, I did. I mean, I felt invincible when I was with Roy. It's, uh, and it sounds like Bob felt the same. He, uh, yeah, I, I, I just can't explain it. It's like, so that's why I say that type of hunting partner and Bob says it in his own words, will it'll it'll never happen again that's what's pretty hard to to take is that knowing that you will never have somebody to take the place of roy now that he's gone back to the back to bob's article um on october 25th 2015 i was back at the buck shack hunting with my brother lauren and my mutual friend dan watson on the second day i found myself stalking a bed of buck below a rocky ridge i eventually shot the buck which rolled to a stop in a saddle because i'd been hunting mountain goats on the far side of bumble bay i was taking a much different route back to camp it took me a second to realize the buck had fallen in roy's saddle i had I had killed the buck in almost the same place I'd watched Roy kill his buck a year earlier. After taking photos and butchering the buck, I put half the meat in my pack and headed for camp, the same route Roy and I had traveled the previous year. I was alone in the darkness. The beach felt lonely. Rather than, rather than the starlit, the sky was cloudy and dark. There was no conversation, no singing. I wonder if I'd see a sign from Roy. Not being a man of faith, reason told me no such sign would be forthcoming. In my heart, I'd hoped I'd see some kind of sign indicating Roy approved of the buck I had killed, a sign he was walking at my side. I searched the skies, hillsides, and darkness of the shell cough straight through tearful eyes. 
but saw no recognizable sign. I made it safely to the buck shack, emotionally drained. The next day with Roy's monument strapped to my pack, I, had back, I hiked back to Roy's saddle. I placed a monument and packed out the other half of my buck again, feeling the sense of loneliness and tears welling in my eyes. I suspect that will happen whenever I'm close to Roy's saddle. The last morning of our hunt, I was hiking towards Roy's saddle. In the sunrise, I saw a young buck rubbing his antlers on forehead on Roy's monument. There it was, the sign I was looking for. Reason told me it was coincidence. I'm not so sure, but I'm sure Roy would approve of his monument being used by a buck as a marking post. Before leaving home, I knelt down, placed my hand on Roy's memorial and whispered, I'll be back next year. Maybe together we can get that big buck I'm after. Rest in peace, my rest in peace, my friend. Rest in peace. And uh, man, what a great article. Um, and this is, you know, I'll show it on camera. I don't know if it'll come in, but this is uh, Roy's saddle memorial that Bob made, and then he had at Roy's funeral there. And yeah, I see my signature. I see my signature there. It says, uh, Roy is a legend and my inspiration in my signature. I, uh, as I was reading Bob's article, uh, and I mentioned Frank Noska is just a, a legendary hunter himself. I'll, I'll wrap up this, this first segment. This is going to be an ongoing series because I have so many stories about Roy, but I, I wanted to set the stage with, with this here. Um, these stories here from just the most badass Alaska hunters I know pretty much. So it kind of sets the stage for this series, but yeah, I could, I could talk for hours about Roy and not just about the incredible man he was. And, uh, you know, he kept me on track most of my life. I've always been like, honestly, kind of a fuck up. There's a, Another little writing here uh, that Bowhunter Magazine included from Frank Noska. And uh, I'll end this, this segment with this one. And it's just titled Inspirational by Frank Noska. Uh, the, the, uh, well, the title says, Throughout our lives, we're lucky to meet one person who inspires us. For me, Roy Roth was that person. Malnops has been my go-to supplements for the past seven years. My exclusive Keep Hammering line of products offers a blended protein powder, BCAs, and a pre-workout that I take every day. Mountain Ops provides quality nutrition and gear to help you conquer through your passions. Their brand is all about faith, family, and hunt, and they truly focus on improving the lives of thousands. Plus, I love that they're a brand designed by hunters for hunters. So head over to mountainops.com and use code CAM to save on my Keep Hammering Signature Series or anything else I offer to help you train inside and conquer outside. Frank writes, moving to Alaska in 2001 was one of the best decisions I ever made. Once I got settled in Wasilla, I was naturally search, I naturally searched out fellow bow hunters, guys like Jack Frost, Tony Russ, Bob Amin, Dave Winby, Carl Brent, and Lon Lauber, and many others. Since my move to Alaska was precisely for the increased opportunities for more bow, more adventurous, more adventurous, adventurous bow hunting. I wanted to meet and get to know these Alaska bow hunters. It was not long before I started hearing about a guy. It was not long before I started hearing about a guy by the name of Roy Roth. 
and I learned very quickly that this man was a real deal. When I first, when I built my first home here in Wasilla, Roth Construction was involved. That was back when Roy, his father Ray, and mother Shirley were still building houses. They helped me out tremendously with planning, direction, subcontractors, desirable financing, etc. I would witness time and time again that this was a genuine demonstration of helping and and get the help of the helping and giving nature of the Roths. There are so many desirable characteristics that made Roy who he was that I cannot list them all here. As a quality person, friend, father, husband, and son, he was second to none. Roy Roth is also one of the most accomplished and successful bow hunters I had ever known. He never wanted any attention for his successes. Before his good friends Cameron Haynes, Bob Amin, and Dwight Shue started revealing some of Roy's great bow hunting accomplishments in their writing, he remained somewhat of unknown. I think that was the way Roy liked it. But you cannot sequester, but you cannot sequester great bow hunting achievements such as taking nine brown bears with a bow forever. Along with his many bony successes, there was not a tougher or stronger bow hunter to ever walk this planet. The tales of his adventures, exploits, and hunts are legendary. I know of no one who could do what Roy could do. To this day, when I'm on one of my adventure bow hunts and I'm and the going gets tough, or I'm I am in a precarious situation, I oftentimes think of Roy. Just knowing the strength he possessed gives me strength. The attendance at Roy Roth's Celebration of Life in Palmer, Alaska was very impressive. The kids he had coached, the hunters he had helped, the church he had served were all represented. Roy's positive influence on the many people was apparent, and through his life he inspired the people he crossed paths with, and in so many ways, Roy Roth inspired me. You know, it's been eight years now since he died, and, uh, you know, you think you'd, you think I'd get tougher eventually. This table here is uh, is to a memorial to Roy. It says Roy Tough, 65 to 15. That's when he was born, 1965. Died in 2015. And uh, there's a picture of our, our last hunt together. This was two weeks before he died or uh, walking along the water there on that moose hunt. And then, you know, right here it says we must endure. And that's that's what we got to do. We endure. Um, You know, Frank writes of Roy's uh, celebration of life. And, you know, much like today, I can't, I can't be, you'd think I could be strong talking about Roy, but I can't. You know, I spoke at that. I spoke at that service, tried to, and, you know, I, I spoke at my dad's service and said what I needed to say. I spoke at my grandma's service because family has, there has to be somebody to represent the families. And, uh, I did that and I, you know, of course it was emotional and it was hard and, you know, it's, I had to really focus, but I just felt like I just had to do it for the family, but at Roy's, I couldn't do it. You know, tried and basically broke down and I still can't talk about them. But I'm gonna try, because I wanna, I wanna share some of these stories. I wanna, I wouldn't, nobody would be listening to me if it wasn't for Roy. Um, 
as I said at the beginning, nobody would know me. Um, yeah. So, uh, Another thing I say when I talk about Roy is legends never die. And I, I want people to know the legend of Roy Roth. I want, I think people, I think, I know the world was a better place when he was here because of the impact he had on others. But uh, I think some of his stories can still um, have his legacy live on and still positively in, impact people. And uh, I think it's, you know, I don't know if it's my responsibility, but it's something I want to do, you know, and we go through or this, we go through life and there's going to be people we love that die. Um, and you know, it's going to be, it's going to be hard. And, uh, this is, this is one of those times, but, uh, yeah, I know, you know, as tough as Roy was, um, when I'm not talking about him, <laughs> he does, he does, I'm tough because of him basically, other than when it's, when I'm reading what people write about him or when I'm thinking about him or, uh, you know, dismissing him. But we're going to share some of these stories and I uh, wanted to kick it off with this one, The Legend of Roy Roth. We'll get into some good stories on the next one. So thanks for listening. One of my favorite packages that I get on a monthly basis is the Black Rifle Coffee Club Exclusive Coffee Roast. The only way you can get it is if you subscribe to the Coffee Club. The exclusive coffee subscription gives you nothing but the best. It's a coffee of the month club where you get premium roasts from the best farms worldwide. Black Rifle Coffee is America's coffee. It's veteran owned and operated. They support hunting and conservation and give back immensely to the veteran community. They're offering followers of the podcast 20% off on your first purchase to the coffee club or orders on their site using code keep hammering to get America's coffee today. Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's know that everyone has their season. Deer season, turkey season, duck season. Every animal is a unique challenge. Every hunt, a different experience. And I count on my local Cabela store here in Springfield, Oregon to gear me up with all my hunting necessities. And you know, I like to support companies that give back to conservation. Under the leadership of founder John Morris, Bass Pro Shop and Cabela's are leading North America's largest conservation movement. Together with our partners, they're positively shaping the future of the outdoors through donations, grant writing, and advocacy. Head to their website, BassProShop.com or Cabela's.com and get geared up for your upcoming hunts.